getting ready to go home on the highest note ever. Yeah. My name is Pastor Anthony Powell with Redeem Life Church in Azusa. I am Ark Church Plant 537. We planted two years ago with my beautiful wife, Bonnie, who's sitting right there in the Emerald Radio. I'm excited to be able to host this session, which is about um, building mentors and teams. And we're going to be hearing from Dr. Frank DiMaggio. I'm just happy. Y'all can do better than that. Experience. He's written over 30 books, pastored churches of over 7,000, understands everything from multi-site to how to mentor and build great teams. They are going to take your church from wherever they're at to the next level. I know for me as a church planner, this is that session where I'm absolutely going to be leading and I'm absolutely got my phone and my, my pen ready to take down notes because they're going to leave with something that I know is going to better equip you with wherever you're at in your church journey. Um, so that being said, I'm not going to take up much time. I want to turn it over to the man. So can we just honor him? Will you just stand at your feet as we give him a round of applause? Phases of ministry for me. I taught in the college for five years. That's how I started. And then I uh, left uh, when I was 30. I taught until I was 30. And then pioneered the church with 18 people in Eugene, Oregon. And uh, we went down there. And Eugene's a very uh, different city. Uh, but we we just went kind of dumb and happy. Uh, I had no launch, I had no, no launch plan. I had no uh, advertisement. I had I did everything you wouldn't do to plant a church. Uh, we started at the Holiday Inn, and uh, the pool was right there. Our little place seated about 40, 50 chairs. It's like a conference room with a glass wall and the pool. So on Sundays, all the people are swimming and partying and kids are knocking on the glass and we're having church. And so it was uh, uh, sovereign that we even got anything going. But we did, we grew the church and went through phases of about 1,700 people and planted seven churches out of there, sent 12 missionaries in 12 years and built debt free.
several thousand, as he said, and has multi-sites, and it has a Bible college, and it's a full meal deal every single day of your life. Uh, four years ago, I got cancer, and so that was also a dark tunnel, very, very difficult time in the prime, in the prime, I'm 64 years old at that time, and the church is thriving, we're getting ready to start two more campuses, I mean, I am... I am at the top of my game. I've been happier. My kids are good. My wife's good. Uh, I think she was good. Uh, and so we're all just kind of moving along, and then, boom, I get cancer. And so I was out for a year, did 300 hours of chemotherapy, uh, and another 20 sessions in radiation, and plus six final taps. I mean, I was a dead man, so they used some stuff they hadn't used before. Uh, but it worked, and so I came out of cancer really not knowing that I would live. I was kind of accepting the fact that this doesn't look good, and, um, but I did. I, I withdrew it. Uh, when I came back to the church, um, it was a year later. I, I totally have 12 months missing from that church, 12 months. I never attended, never went to a leader's meeting. All I did was try to stay alive. So I, I had disconnected from the church 100 and so when I came back, I preached a couple times, and I started picking up the load again, and I, I just said, you know, this is not going to work. Uh, it's just not going to work. So I had an elders meeting told us it's not going to work. Uh, the church is in good shape. It grew 11% while I was out. Wow. Uh, both in finance, attendance. And, I mean, the church didn't miss a beat. We had a strong team. But I couldn't carry the load in recovery. I still had a year of recovery, two, three sessions a week with doctors. And I mean, I'm shrunk to nothing, bald head. I'm a cancer patient trying to pastor again. And so I, I said to the elders, it's not fair. I, I wrote on a piece of paper, I have a home office, I always have. On a piece of paper, I wrote, and I'm trying to pray myself through this. And I put on a piece of paper, who is best for City Bible Church? I couldn't put my name in there. After days of asking the question, I could not write my name. So I said to my wife, and she said, no, do not do this. This is a mistake. You're suffering from emotional imbalance. You just got out of cancer. You wait a year or two. Then we'll, I said, the church can't wait a year or two. I said, it's, it's not going to be good. And so long story short, I made a transition. Uh, and that transition was very successful. The church has gone on. Uh, I'm still an elder in that church, but I'm never there. Uh, I don't make decisions. They, they actually would like me to do a lot more than I'm doing. But my ministry, I kind of reinvented myself. And, and I told the guys, I need to move on. And Mark needs to take the church. Mark Edmonds, you probably saw his picture as one of the new uh, team people for the uh, ARC uh, West Coast team. He's on that team. Uh, Mark worked with me for 20 years. Uh, he's an amazing leader, amazing man. Uh, we went through a process, gave the church to him, and we're still related very well. There's no funny business. Uh, but I wanted to give him room. And so I kind of uh, went on with life, and my wife and I and, uh, reinvented what we do right now in our ministry, which is basically leadership. I preach at churches uh, because they want me to, and I enjoy it, but that's not really my my main thing, my main thing is helping leaders. I coach, I coach 14 pastors right now worldwide. I do intensives uh, 12, 15 times a year, and I do uh, other leadership type stuff like this, and our own conference starts on Monday night. We have uh, several hundred leaders coming in for that. And so that's kind of my long and short story of who I am. Been married 42 years, we have four children, two grandchildren, I uh, pastored only two churches in my whole life, and uh, I went back, got my degree from ORU. I had a Master of Divinity and a Doctor of Ministry from ORU, and in the meantime, I wrote a few books. And so, during that, during that whole journey, you learn a lot of things about ministry. I think I'm on my way down today, uh, if, if I need to get into this, these slides, I'm going to teach you about mentoring leaders and building teams. Both would be uh, worthy of a lot more sessions, each one of them. Uh, but I was thinking today, what are the main things you learn in leadership when you start out? And what are the things I've learned over a lifetime? You know, I'm kind of logging those 
one, one statement, which I'm not going to do in the session, but I've been logging those statements. You know, my, my doctor, uh, when I went to the cancer and came back up to the therapy side, I, while I lived, I had a nerve. The cancer was in my hip. I had a, a tumor, and it ruined the nerves in this leg. Before that, I was a cyclist, cycled 100 miles plus a week, and was a golfer, and was a very active person uh, in every way. Uh, and so when I got the cancer that I came through that, that was enough. Then the therapy, that was enough. And then they finally said to me, we don't think your leg is going to come back. That was horrible. And so I'm sitting there with my, with my therapist, doctor, who had been through the whole journey, and we're needing me, and she says, I have some great news for you. It's a really bad news for you. She said, the great news is you're alive. <laughs> I said, that's good news, yes. I know I'm alive. She says, we saved your life. Did we not save your life, right? I said, you saved my life. And she said, to save your life, we had to kill your body. I said, yeah, I'm aware of that. And she says, your leg, you will never cycle again. You'll never golf again. If you do, you can break your hip. And there's no repairing because the bone's gone. So you'll be in a wheelchair the rest of your life. So you've got to give up any thought because I had just been cycling and got downtown and couldn't get back on my bike. I, I had got right out of the hospital and got on my bike, rode downtown about 20 miles, and, and I was sitting on the bench and I couldn't move. And so I had to call my wife. She didn't know I had left the house. Uh, and she says, she says, where are you? And I said, well, I'm, I'm kind of like downtown. She says, well, your car's here. I said, yeah, I kind of like rode my bike. <laughs> you idiot. You, you are the worst ever. Taste what? I said, just cut the stuff. <laughs> and get in the car and come and get me because I can't move. <laughs> so I heard from her the whole way back. You know? Anyway, my therapist said to me, after we finished, that you're late, not going to fix, you're not going to So I left the office, and I stopped for about 20 minutes. I mean, I went out of the office, went to a private room, and I was so emotionally distraught. I just sobbed, saying, God, this is so unfair, so wrong. You know that at least I could golf. At least I could ride a little bit, at least. And now she's saying, and so I'm going through this emotional wall. I hit it, and I hit it even more, almost than going through the cancer. When she said I couldn't do these things ever again the rest of my life, it was like I hit the wall. So I came back, and she scooted up to me to meet with me, and she said these words, which is the most prophetic words I had heard from a doctor. She said, Frank, she says, you know I love you. You, you are the best patient ever. She said, you are really a Job. Well, I said, that's not a compliment. But she said, you're about She said this to me. She said, what I want you to do is this. I want you to pick up all the pieces you have left and build something great with them. And that was the word of the Lord to me. Pick up all the pieces you have left. She said, quit whining. She said, a lot of people in your ward are dead. She said, you're alive. And she said, you look good. You're in good health. We think you will be cancer-free a year from now. You're already doing a lot of things. She said, you need to quit whining and pick up all your pieces and build something great with your life. Don't waste all the pieces that you have. Well, you know, she changed my life. I went home, sat down, and that's when I reinvented myself, and I started doing a whole different Frank Demonsio Ministries, and, you know, I got motivated. It took me about a month to kind of gather myself after meeting with her, even. Uh, but in doing that, I found my niche. My niche has always been leadership. I've written a lot on leadership. And even as pastoring, I always spoke during a week somewhere to leaders and conferences. I mean, it's always kind of been my love. I love leaders. I love helping and so I'm going to give you, in this session, a framework. This is what uh, I'm going to do. I'm going to frame in what it means to have a thriving church. But I'm going to frame in, really, the mentoring and teams piece of it. In all my traveling right now, all my coaching and talking with people, I find that there's a real piece missing in pastors and developing leaders. Developing leaders does not happen in a classroom. Yeah. Development leaders doesn't happen in a college curriculum. Right. 
developing leaders doesn't happen because you think you're developing leaders. And you can't delegate developing leaders to anybody else because the only person that can put the vision DNA inside the leaders that will stay with you is you, the senior pastor. No, you can't delegate that to anybody else. You can delegate finance, delegate children's ministry, delegate whatever you want with the property, but don't delegate raising of leaders because they're an extension of you. And if you don't do that, they'll be an extension of someone else. And when that happens, the extension can be a mixed Leviticus 19.19. The field is sown with diverse seed. And so you have a mixed bag because now you have maybe your own vision, your own values, and you think you're imparting those. But whoever you give the leader to train, that person also has vision and values. Even though they agree with yours, they still have their own package. They have their own impartation. And so I say to pastors, if you're going to raise up a thriving church, here's eight of the elements that you've got to put inside of, okay? Uh, is this going to work for me? So which one do I do? This one? Yeah. All right. So you're going to have to start writing because the slide will have fill-ins. Like this one is going to have the eight components of a thriving church. Now, what I would call these is really the eight cultures of a thriving church, but I'm using the word components. And these eight components really make up what I would talk about if we had like eight hours. If we had eight hours, I would do this slide right here. And this slide has what I think are the eight non-negotiables that you have to put into what is called the thriving church. The gospel-centered culture is a conversion growth. This is what I hate about this generation. I work so hard. <laughs> it used to be they have to take notes now. is you establishing your church with a core that is gospel-motivated. Gospel-centered is not just preaching and having altar calls. Gospel-centered is a conversion culture. Belonging culture is your place to go. Every church has a different format. Uh, church of the Highlands gives a lot out of the art thing. Their format's fantastic. We have one. Everybody needs to have a belonging culture. A discipleship culture, which I would spend hours on this one, because I think a lot of churches have a culture without discipleship. They have attendance culture, they have a happy culture, they have a music culture, but they don't produce disciples. Wow. And so because of that, and, and I did that. Hey, I pastored for, for 37 years, senior pastor. So I know, and when I discovered that I didn't make disciples, it took me two years to steer the church in a different direction to get our culture down. Two years from the realization that, hey, we don't make disciples, but we have great services. Mm. And we have great worship, and our lighting is next to none, and our smoke machine is state-of-the-art. And our worship leaders got tattoos. (laughs) When I realized that we had cultured the church into connectability, but not transformation. It rocked my boat. Okay, I'm not going to talk about that. Uh, Serving culture, where everyone is involved. So you you build a certain culture. Holy Spirit alive culture. I still think the Holy Spirit's getting a short end of the stick. I think churches need more of the Holy Spirit. If you want to know how Jesus builds a church, he uses the Holy Spirit. If you use corporate value systems and corporate ideas to build a church and call it Holy Spirit, I don't think Jesus is happy with that. And so you have to be a Holy Spirit person. Does that mean you have to speak in tongues? I don't know. Figure it out. Go to the Bible. Read the You know, do what you have to do. But I've always said to our church, if you buy the shoes, the tongues come with them. Does this thing have a reverse? 
Because we're already on the wrong slide. Can you can you get me back to the thriving church slide? Okay. What I want to say there is I'm dealing with number six. In this section right here, I'm just going to talk to you for a few minutes about leadership culture. That's all I'm dealing with. And the strategy for developing a leadership culture. If you have that strategy, can you work the slides from back there? Yes. Good, because I, I get talking and then I press long. My, my wife and my daughters and my son and most of my staff say I'm dysfunctional. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, better that you do it. All right. Uh, the next slide that I'm going to put up is the um, bell curve of what a church goes through. Now, everybody in this room is on that bell curve. doesn't matter what age your church is. doesn't matter uh, what uh, kind of church you are. It doesn't matter. Most of you, if you're uh, five or ten years uh, in the church planning, you're on the, the left side of that diagram. You're not on the right side of it. Uh, you, you haven't plateaued. You've not been gone, going long enough to plateau. Uh, but I'm going to prophesy to you, you will. And so there will be each one of these phases that you go through as a church. Not necessarily that 8, 9, 10, 11, and 12 will be your portion, but most churches will. They will in a lifetime. I pastored a church when I took it. It was already 40 years old. And so when I was in Eugene, the church was me in 12 years. And so everything was on the left side of this diagram. There was nothing on the right side. When I went back to Portland, the right side was much more real from 7, 8, 9 that I had not experienced before. And so if you're planting the church or you're going through, let me just, you just write down, a, uh, I got the key words there. Let me fill it in with just a couple sentences in each one of them. And you think with me about your church. Initial structure is when you dream. Initial structure is when you dream, you launch, uh, it's your birth point, it's, it's when you write those delicious mission statements and vision statements and everybody applauds and everybody acts like they're in unity with you and, and they, they don't even know what they're doing yet. Uh, but it, it's a great momentum, it's a great feel to put out a mission statement and, and something at the beginning. My church planning days, I loved it so much because there was so much energy and synergy and wonderfulness in that room and everybody was on board. And then you go to number two, your formal structure is when someone, and there's all different views on this, someone has to write out the vision and the values and the goals and the DNA. Someone has to carry them. That's not something you get from a book. That's something that comes from you as a lead pastor and hopefully your team. But you have to have a vision. What is your vision? What kind of a church are you going to build? You have to have your values. You have to have your goals. You have to have your DNA. You have to be able to impart that. Uh, I ask pastors when I coach them and help them all the time, tell me what your vision is. They'll read a statement. I said, now tell me what your vision is. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, that's a statement. could be on any wall. You know, we're, gonna, we're going to uh, serve the city, we're going to reach the city, we're going to make disciples, and we're going to impact the world, and we're going to change humankind for God. Well, that's a hallelujah statement there. Uh, what are you doing? Well, we're trying to see if we can find a convert. Okay, let's go back to your vision, not your statement. Your vision is where you are, not where you think you're going. Now, that is totally opposite to what people teach. But a lot of people teach vision as something that is almost fantasy land, that you can write out anything, but vision is connected to your values, your gift, and your capacity. So you can't write someone else's vision. It's your value, your gift, your capacity. I can write out a great city-reaching vision, but I might not have the gift, the capacity, or anything else to fulfill that vision. So I need to write a vision that fits me that fits my gifting, my capacity, and where we're going, and how we're going to get there, and what values I have. Third, you'll have rapid growth. Most church plants do. And the rapid growth from 0 to 50 is rapid growth. 0 to 150 is rapid growth. Uh, even in two or three years, rapid growth will happen, even if it's only a few. This is an interesting statistic. 80% of churches, at least in America, grow to their full size that they will ever be in the first five years. That's a fact. That's not a, a guess. That, that's a research fact that 80% that of the churches will grow to their full size and never change it in five years. 
So where they get, and you think about it. You think about the churches in your city. You think about your friends. Think about maybe the church you're involved, whatever. And it's been going seven years, and it was 200 now, 201. And then nine years at 242, and then it's back to 189, then it's up to 214, and then finally gets to 250, and then you have a fallout, goes back to 170. And then what happens is that whatever you sow in the ground going in from thermal structure to growth will be the growth cap. So what you build with on the early days will become the growth cap of where you're going. So you better be very, very, very careful that when you build from the beginning that you lay a very good foundation. We're so interested in putting on the roof, we don't care so much about the foundation. We want multiple services just because everyone has them. Even if there's seven people in the service. How many services? We have three. How many people? Twenty-seven. Why do you have three? Because it's just, it's a God's pain. It's God's pain. We're multi-sites. We have, I meet with this one pastor, multi-sites in church, and his church was deader than Julius Caesar. And so you have his church, and then he started another church with, that was Julius Caesar's cousin. And, and that church was dead as that church. And I said, what are you doing? He said, well, we're going, to, we're going to break through by starting campuses. I said, no, you're going to die by starting campuses. I said, you can't export what you don't have. And multi-site doesn't fix anything. It exposes everything. It doesn't fix a thing. It exposes all your weaknesses. And so if you think that's going to get you into a growth pattern, well, that's the devil talking to you. Okay. <laughs> Then maximum efficiency, usually in about three, four, five years, a church will find its rhythm, its staff, its leaders, you've had no splits, you've had no fallout, everybody still loves you, you know, you're dedicating babies, baptizing people, doing a lot of dinners, everybody talks good of you, you're at that place where the church feels so good, and enjoy it, because that's a wonderful place to be, it's just that you don't get to stay there. So maximum efficiency puts you into number five, which is prime. Prime, you need to write down danger. When you get to prime, you start having enough money, facilities, and leadership. And enough. You start trying to do things that I would call the ambition of overreaching. And so you begin that undisputed pursuit of more. We got to have more. We got to have more services. Have to have more staff. I, I can't believe how many young churches I deal with that are overstaffed. And you know what they're overstaffed with? Part-time people. And you know who the part-time people are? Ladies. Because they can be part-time. And so I'm talking to a pastor. He's showing me his staff pictures, and we're going through it. He has 14 staff, 12 are women. And I said, oh, well, just one second here. I don't think you're a pervert or anything. So I'm not going to hint anything about your man of integrity. But I said, do you not see something funny about this picture here? He goes, what? It's just 12 women to men. Oh, he said, the women can afford to be part-time. So I said, you're going to staff your church with part-time women who will reproduce leadership in the female arena, who will speak to the families that are male in your congregation that this is a female church. Is that really what you want? Now, I'm for women ministries. We had women elders. But I'm not for 12 to 14. I'm not 12 of them and two of us. It's got to be 12 of us and two of them. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> And it's a secret weapon that will kill you all. So I said, take all your part-time money. He said, well, we can't afford. Uh, I said, what you need is a full-time administrator, not worship children. Right. You need someone to run. You're at 500, and that is your best. Right now, we're going through hours of this. He says, I don't have the money. He said, of course you have the money. Add everything up for me. Write the numbers down. So he did. I said, what, what does it come to? He told me. I said, that's two full-time staff people. Mm -hmm. I said, that's one really good 
full-time staff person if you want to hire in a real mover and shaker. But I said, you, you're not going to get them for 20000 a year. That's true. 18000 a year, and you're going to stack it. What happens when you get the prime and the church starts having a little extra money, you want to spend it on part-time staff. I think the best counsel I could ever give you is quit staffing and train volunteers. Yeah. Yeah. Become a volunteer culture and do not use your money for a bunch of part-time staff that volunteers could be doing. Yeah. And it cuts into the culture of servanthood. It cuts into the culture of a lot of things when you have to have everybody pay for every little thing that's done in the church. Mm-hmm. Don't fall into it. Don't do it. Uh, you know, make them volunteer. My son's a pastor right now. He's pioneering. He's in his first year. He's, he's knocking it out of the park. I mean, they broke 500 already, and so he's, he's totally stunned and happy, and I am too. I'm saying, God, well, why does he have 500? <laughs> I didn't have 500 in five years. Why, why does he do the same thing you take a picture of the slides? It's a generational thing, you know. You, you get to do things I didn't get to do. Praise God. But the first thing he wants to do is talk. Dad, I'm going to hire some people. I said, really? (laughs) (laughs) You've been going 10 months. You have people. You have money. Now you're going to hire. Yeah. And this is what I'm thinking. What do you think? I said, you know when you ask that question. I'm going to tell you what I think. (laughs) That's the stupidest decision you will ever make in your first 10 months. Save your money, save your people, and don't get people pitting against each other who's going to be next on staff. Because those young people said, well, some of them came to start the church with and they deserve. Nobody has a free pass for staff. I don't care if they came with you, I don't care if they're your brother, your sister, your wife, works for some staff to begin. <laughs> Now, if you made that, just go to the Pope tonight, some priest somewhere, get some water sprinkled, and go on with life. But you need to be careful on how you staff, when you staff, who you staff, what it represents, and what is the big picture on that. Prime means I've been overstepped. If you get to stable, stable is a great place, but stable is right before plateau. Why? Stable is a rhythm of routines. And you can be five years, seven years. Churches, the age now would be, you know, 10, 12, 15, 20 years. But you get into a routine. Why did the church grow so much the first five years? Because the routines that you're doing now were not the routines you were doing then. Your routines have become organizational, structural, maintenance, and keep instead of reach. When you start, you have to reach or you don't have, you wanted to be on set. And so you have to reach. But once you get to the place where all your emphasis is on structure, organization, what used to be a free-flowing river is now a frozen river. You freeze up. And you stop the very thing that would keep your church moving. Who do you staff? that actually reaches people. Most people staff people that will take care of small groups. They will take care of the hospitals. They will take care of the counseling. It's all staffing that goes back to maintain, not grow. Yeah. Okay, this is all free. If you move the plateau, you can't get off of it. You can't stop it. Uh, if you don't, you'll have unhealthy decline. Uh, which they say about 60% of American churches are in that, or maybe more. Unhealthy stagnation, I think there's a lot more than 60% that's in stagnation. And then you have an unhealthy crisis. Un- a crisis that is in a church that's stagnated or declining means the crisis is going to be 10 times worse. A healthy church that has a crisis will come right back out of it. A sick church that has a crisis, it might be the funeral. And so having an unhealthy church is not what you want. Now, I'm going to move to the next. Oh, let me just, you won't take this down. Let me say it. I ask, this is mainly for lead pastors, but it could be maybe for anybody that's pastoring. But I ask pastors around the world uh, a certain question. I say, what do you do? And, and tell me how much you do with your time. So I ask that question. Around the world, I compile a list 
of 10 things that every pastor told me. And just about all of them say these same 10 things. They're, they use different terms, but it's the same 10 things they say all the time. This is what they say. Okay, I'm pastor. I lead. I lead. I preach. I work very hard. It's been a long time since I did. They get the book. They always. I raise money. Every Sunday, you know, we tithe offering or whatever. I find volunteers for everybody. I dream, and I dream big. I have strong convictions. I believe in evangelism. I'm a worshiper, and I'm out to grow the church. Those would be the 10 things that pastors have said to me literally maybe several hundreds of times. And so then I ask them this question. Is it working? They say, what do you mean? Is working. Is the church growing and multiplying? Is it working? Most of the time they would say, it's not like I want it to be, but I don't know why. I said, let me give you a suggestion. So I give them a list of 10 other things. And this is what I say to them. They say, I read and I ask the question, do you produce leaders? Well, and you know what they're, 50% of the time, maybe more, their answer to that is, I don't have the time. And that honestly is the answer. I, I don't know when I would do it. Okay? I preach, and then I ask them, do you equip? Or do you inspire them to death? I work hard. I think you do. My question is, do you delegate well? Well, there's certain things you can't let go, like everything. <laughs> so I'm not going to let it go. I mean, Frank, I'm, I'm shaping culture here. Well, when will you stop? It's been four years. When, when are you going? I raise money, and then my question is, do you manage the budget? Or just raise more money to cover some of the problems? I find volunteers. Fantastic. My question, do you keep them? Mm. Well, we got to go through it almost, you know, every few months. And the children's ministry, you know, they need dozens of people. And then I can't get anybody to be on the youth. And, you know, it's easy to get people on the worship. They're gifted people. They want to be on the platform. So I find that the easiest. But for me to get the parking lot people and the people to feed the crackers to the kids, all those kind of things, this, this, is, this is hard to find those kind of people. And so I find volunteers, and then I have to keep doing it. Everybody, and they used to do it to me all the time. They would they'd come up. I'd be sitting in the front row during the worship service, and they would come like, like people presenting their, their gift, but they weren't. They were presenting their need. They would come up and say, oh, Pastor Frank, uh, I know it's not on the slides and it's not on the video, but could you, could you get some, some help for us Tuesday night and celebrate recovery? Someone else come up, Pastor Frank, we have the youth camp. We only have six people volunteering. We need 70. Can you say something? <laughs> <laughs> Right now, this morning, this morning, we're missing three main teachers this morning. Can you say something before you preach it? Send them out. I would get these notes all the time, and it, and it would quench my spirit. The anointing would lift, and I would get angry. Find them yourself. See, the problem is, it's not finding volunteers. And keeping them is a strategy of strategies. I dream big. My question, do you dream strategically? Big is not going to achieve big. Strategy achieve big. I ask them, okay, you have convictions. And this is a funny one. I, they always talk around this one. They have strong convictions. So I ask them, do you learn from others? Well, that they have my same convictions. Are your convictions 
authenticated in heaven somewhere? <laughs> like your convictions is like equal to scripture. I mean, what do you think? Do you learn from other people? Well, you know, I visited this mega church and all they're doing is get people in the front door. They have a great atmosphere and hundreds of people come to the altar. But I think they compromise. I'm keeping the conviction. So I said, would you rather have a small dead horse or a big dead horse? <laughs> because you have a dead horse. <laughs> so a, a person can say, no, I have strong, well, you have strong opinions. And you won't get out of your ruts until you learn from people you don't like. True. Till you learn from people that don't have your funny convictions. Say, well, you know, they don't even speak in tongues. Oh, okay. <laughs> Does Piper speak in tongues? Okay, let's talk about the tongues. Been, I mean, a person, I've known people in my church that spoke in tongues, and they were mean as a lizard. <laughs> Speaking in tongues doesn't make you the great person. Okay, um... <laughs> How about this one? I believe in evangelism. Do you, do you build an evangelistic culture? Uh-oh. What, what do you mean? Do you build a culture? Culture. We had no culture, see. When, when I discovered where we were, our culture. Strategy. Structure. Culture. Strategy drives... Structure support, but culture trumps everything. Because if the culture is new and the structures are old, you're doomed. If the strategy is cutting edge and the culture is old, you're doomed. You can have great strategy and great structure, but if you don't have culture, you cannot change the church. And culture... It's the belief, the behaviors, the how-to, the what-to. It's, it's what everybody does. It's, okay, I worship, but do you build a worship culture? I grow the church, but do you protect the leaders from burnout? Are you driving up the mountain of growth all the time? I think some churches have too many meetings, mm -hmm. and they harm the young families. Yeah. And then they use it against them. You're not committed. You're not covenant. You know, other people are more passionate. You know, you need to be at the prayer meeting. You need to be at the special meeting. You need to, and they're working 40 hours, 50 hours a week already. And then you're, you're pulling them out for Sunday. And then you're having them on the worship team or the children or the youth. And get on Wednesday night. Then you want to have a Friday night. Then you want to do a fast and a prayer thing. Then you're bringing in a special. You need to be careful that meetings don't become the actual acts that cuts down the tree. When we discovered we weren't evangelistic, it was simple. We didn't have time to be. Everybody was too busy. I had them in all kinds of church, everything. We had to clean the deck. We had to stop so much because we had built a culture of busyness. Not relating to anybody outside that community called Christian. And so we had no convert. We had no people getting saved. We changed that, and it worked. All right, now, 2 Timothy 2, 2. Is there a clock in this room? Because I don't have a watch on. 343, so about 15 instruments. Well, oh. come out, you foul spirit. This is called, this is my own trend. I love it. I, love it. I, love it. I couldn't find anybody else that agreed with me. I took the Greek and kind of did my thing because I think there's something in this verse that is really fantastic. Be intentional to handle rightly and communicate faithfully the apostolic message. Entrust these things to proven and reliable leaders for safekeeping and for transmission to others. 
carrying on this process to an indefinite number of people who will pass on the kingdom deposit to an endless pipeline of leaders. Now that, in a nutshell, is what I'm responsible for. You know what I'm responsible for as a senior pastor? Feed the sheep and raise leaders. That's it. I'm not responsible to counsel. I'm not responsible, and I know, you know you'd have to hear me a lot more, but uh, in budget meetings, uh, we would have thick books to go through because we were, you know, properties and campuses and lots of money is coming through. Honestly, this is the truth. I never understood the notebook. <laughs> and when they were all going through everything so feverishly, and able, you know, this is the budget. And I would sit there and, and I would turn pages with them. <laughs> <laughs> What do you think? Uh, what do you think? And Robert would say, well, I think, and what do you think, Mark? That's exactly what I'm thinking. I did not have the capacity to crunch numbers for five hours. It drains me of everything in me. My responsibility is to feed the sheep and raise leaders. If I would do those two things well, the church would prosper. Now, you've got to get some smart guy to do administration, and I did. you got to get some smart guy to do you. Just get somebody with tattoos, getting jeans, and put him in. I'm just kidding. So, but I raised up leaders. In, in my pastoring time, I met with our youth guys every week I was home. Every single week, I met with all the youth pastors and leaders from all the campuses with me for two to four hours. Every single week. And I did the same thing with the worship pastors, the main core people, every single week. What? Worship and youth develop the personality church. And so I want my hand on those people. I want them to answer to me. Why are we doing those songs? They would say, this is a fantastic song. I said, that, that is a horrible song. I said, number one, it's not biblical. There you go. Wow. It's not biblical at all. What you're, what you're making the people sing is kind of a funny thing. Number two, it's too long. By the time I sing the song, I forgot what song we're singing. <laughs> and I said, but, but one of the guys would say, but I wrote it. And I said, I know you wrote it. Don't write anymore. <laughs> So we would go back and forth on worship, and they, would, they said to me one time, they said, Pastor Frank, I hate worship pastors. They said, Pastor Frank, listen up. We, we want to bring something up that we're not happy with. I said, great. I, I got three things, too. <laughs> and so the guy that was over, he said to me, this is from all of us, but I'm the spokesperson. I said, he said, we, we don't like it when the MC interrupts our worship set. We, we practice, we work so hard for the five songs we're going to do, and then the MC gets up after the third song, does an altar call, or does an exhortation, and then we can't do the fourth song, then we've got to end on the fifth, the fifth doesn't fit with the third, and so we don't want anybody to interrupt us until we finish the set. Oh, I like that. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> And I would say, okay, why do worship leaders exist? Well, to lead the church and worship. No! That is not why you exist. You are the plow in the ground for me to sow seed in their field. And if I think I can throw out the three songs, your other two songs are Ishmael. <laughs> in a set, it's a matter of how deep the plow has gone. Let's turn this a little bit. 
that you serve something besides itself. Wow. I said, you guys not think that I study, 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 and I actually have 12 pages of notes and I get to do three of them yeah, because right. just like today, I get, you know, um, and, and so then I have to take those notes and finally say, it's just not fair. I have seven more pages of notes and now they, go, they don't get to hear those ever. I, I'm going to preach well, I'm going to preach for an hour and 20 minutes for now. It's not that. It's meeting the need of the people where they are, moving them where they should go, and making sure we do that for the people, not for my sermon. And it, it took some deliverance for me to give up my notes. No. Those are very, very researched. <laughs> okay, now, leadership pipeline. Every church needs to have this right here. Next one, leadership pipeline. Uh, building a leadership culture. A culture is more than a class. It's more than an intern program. It's more, it, a culture has to saturate everything. A leadership pipeline culture is a culture that systematically develops the potential leaders that find them hard, they how do you get into the door, and what do you do with them, effectively moving them into the right place, whatever that right place is, and at times to match the growth and expansion of the church. And so my job as a senior pastor, no matter what size the church is, and I've proven it at least for the success that I've had and the way I help other churches and what we've done. This is my job description, is to build a pipeline of leadership, a pipeline of culture, that I can reproduce the right kind of leaders for the right places, that those leaders can find their place in that local church. But you have to produce leaders not just because they have a gift, even though that's part of reproduce. I mean, I have a whole intensive on this. It's not, it's not just the gift. You don't reproduce leaders for their gift. You reproduce leaders for the church. Mm-hmm. If you cater to the gift, the gift can leave you at any point when there's a great opportunity for their gift. If you cater to the reproducing a heart for the house, they will stay to help you build the house with the gift they have because they understand the house is larger than their gift. I made so many mistakes the first 10 or 20 years because I developed people of potential gift and charisma and people that had so much to offer, but I left a piece out. And that piece had to do with developing the entire culture of leadership, which is, I want to develop leaders that will love this church the way I do, love yep. this church the way I do, yep. stay with this church the way I do. I don't want this leader to say to me after two years, okay, I'm ready to go because they're offering a new youth position for me, and so I'm going. But you haven't, you just second up, hey, you haven't replaced yourself. You haven't even reproduced one youth leader under you. I know, you can hire someone else, but I'm going to go take this because it's a great opportunity for me and my wife. Well, what's the problem with that? You're going with gift, even though it hurts the house, and you have a very flawed understanding of reproducing leaders because you're only concerned about how high your gift goes, not how much time you have to spend in the trench with those people that irritate you and develop slowly. How do you develop people that are lesser than you? Anybody wants to hang out with a stronger. They get But you have to learn how to take the lesser and make them greater. You have to take those that nobody wants and make them someone that everybody wants. So you have to see the gold in the heel. You have to have a process. You have to have a heart to do this. Uh, you know, for me, that Genesis 14, 14. What time is it? Five minutes. Five minutes. Mm-hmm. Did you check this grade? Is that true? <laughs> no. <laughs> okay. I'm going to give you another scripture. 1 Thessalonians 2.8. The mentoring heart. If I was doing a diagram, I would say pipeline is the big circle because you take leaders into Timothy training and other kinds of 
forms of mentoring, but not the mentoring I'm going to talk about right now. It's the outer circle that can take in a lot of potential leaders and begin to get them on track. The next level is mentoring. Mentoring, we weren't aloof with you, we took you just as you were. What a scripture, this is message translation. We were never patronizing, never condescending, but we cared for you the way a mother cared for her children. We loved you dearly, not content to just pass on a message. We wanted to give you our hearts. And we did. Mentoring is not informational transformation. Mentoring is not knowledge. It's giving yourself. And when you learn how to mentor and give yourself away, well, life changes totally. All right? Here's the mentoring heart. Mentoring is a biblical proven method. By the way, all the greatest leaders in the scripture came through this method. Mentoring is a biblical proven method to develop an intentional relationship for the purpose of empowering emerging leaders to reach their full God-given potential spiritually, emotionally, intellectually, and relationally. Mentoring is taking people like the Moses, Joshua, and Elijah, like all these different... But now you begin to mentor leaders onto a different level. I can train 20, 30, 40, 50 leaders maybe in a pipeline. I mean, really impart to them the training that I get. But if I want to mentor a Joshua, it's not the thing of the pipeline. If I want to mentor, mentor an Elijah, if I want to do a Timothy, if I, if I want to do a David, if I, if I want to take the kind of leaders, this is what I, I believe and this is what I teach. Mentoring positions you for teams who will be led by people that have your heart and your DNA. Yeah. You don't take people from a pipeline and bypass your own mentoring and put them leading team because they can be imparting other values, other vision, other stuff. Take your mentoring to build team leaders that will birth teams and you'll never have to worry about how many teams come under them or how much influence they have or how many people are looking at them because you understand that the mentoring process is putting your heart, your values, your experience into them. I have methods for that, but I can't tell you in five minutes. <laughs> it's his fault. <laughs> Man, it's quenching my jet. <laughs> now I'm just having fun with Anthony. He needs to be focused. All right, last slide, because there's one minute left, probably. Okay? How, how many are getting something out of this? Yeah. Like, I might need to correct it. Yeah. <laughs> All right. The involving mentoring culture. The involving mentoring culture. Next slide. And they're all up there. Okay. Church relationship culture. You can't have a mentoring culture if the church culture is non-relational. Right. Okay? So you have to deal with the big pool first. Then you have to have an emerging leaders culture which means you teach all of your key leaders how to help emerging leaders come up, how to spot them, how to surface them, and how to help them find a mentoring experience. Then you have mentoring leaders culture, where you take what I just said a while ago about how to choose your team leaders, and your mentoring team leaders, you start, not only I did this, but all of my key guys, and then out from that, there's circles that have to do this, and then it turns into a team's culture. Now, I'm going to give you one last thing on team's culture. Mentoring leaders and building teams. Team's culture is what? Creating a team culture with team values, beliefs, core principles, leadership, partner, positions, the church for multiplication, growth, and strategic expansion. This is the truth of the matter. You will never have a multiplying church on your gift only. No matter how good it is. I don't care how good it is. You could be the apostle Paul. <laughs> you can't have multiplication growth without leaders that can stretch the rope and put stakes in the ground so that the tent can be stretched. Yeah. Multiplication means you have to have team of teams church. A team of team church has no limits. It, it, 
You can have as many services as you want, as many campuses as you want. You can grow the church almost really to any number you want within your gift capacity and God's sovereign will and all that stuff. If you know how to build teams. But the problem with millennials is that they come in relationally with groups and if they get offended or crossed, they leave in a group. And so if you're mentoring team leaders and you put a millennial over one of your teams, like a, a worship team, I had one of our worship teams come to me on one of the campuses, and the guy said, we only want, to, we only want this group right here, seven musicians and the two worship singers, to leave all the services on that campus. We don't want anybody else to be visiting the campus, but uh, we're the one. I said, that, that's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. It's not your culture, not your church. Well, long story short, for them was this. If you don't let us do it, we're all quitting leaving worship. You won't have a worship team next time. And I said, really? Okay. I said, you don't have to worry about it then. I'll fix it. So you'll let it do that. I said, no. Even if you repent right now, you're not leaving worship for me for a long time. I said, if you right now fall on your face and say, oh my God! We just did a stupid thing. Not to bring together. But I will forgive you, and then I will put you in a development of character. Because you obviously have and character and your anointing that the church gets to eat from because we're so privileged to have you lead us in worship. I said, I would rather sing on the They had the young that followed them out. If you're going to have people and give them influence, don't give influence to people that you haven't been to. Because they will use that influence against you. I have not had, honestly, City Bible Church has the best teams, the best leaders, the best. I mean, I don't, I can't even remember way back, 15 years now or more. We have never had that happen again. We, we have unity in the ranks all the way down, but we practice this principle of imparting to the leaders that you give influence to. Don't give positions without implication. You will pay for it. My last slide, and I'm going to end, Anthony, and you can preach this to your church like you fasted 40 days to get Last slide, team components, and each one of these would be sessions in themselves. You have to have a team culture. Again, that's the overall culture of preaching the unified vision, the team in the church, that group. And then you have to understand how to train a team player. You have to know what your team values will be. You have to understand what is a team leader and what level of authority, influence, and all that stuff I just talked about. And then you've got to make team covenants that everybody enters into. Then you have to do a thing that is really huge on how to build trust. And then you'll have a thriving local church because the teams are so solid, so built in, so unified. And I, even when I was taken out of the, out of the, you know, the church kind of, all the teams function the same. It, the church is not built on me. Honestly, that 7,000 people was not built on Frank DeMonson. They were built on a strategy, a structure, and a culture of teams that supported each other. And so their team leaders are the most important thing in their life. I'm not the most important thing. Their team leaders are the most important thing. And they're like, so you better make sure yep. those team leaders. Now, uh, in uh, to close, I'm afraid for you and you can go home, you've had a busy week. I'd love to do some QA. I'd love to hear your questions right now, but we don't have the time. In my briefcase, Barry, on the very back, there's a, a thing for intensives. Uh, not that I'm trying to uh, sell you my ministry because I'm not, but just if you. Uh, as a local church, this is what I do. What I do with churches is I go in and I do an intensive on a weekend. And these intensives are six sessions, just like that right there. That would be one intensive 
with a notebook of 150 pages in six sessions, and I would meet with the entire team, the team of teams, and, and I would impart these things to them, and, and we'd have Q&A. It's, it's like what we're doing right now, but it would be uh, for a whole day. I do it uh, for the local churches. Most of them do it all day on Saturday. Some do Friday night Saturday, but I think the best is that all day Saturday when everybody can come. And so uh, I'd like you to look at those. I have like six or seven different kinds of intensives that I do to help churches. Or you can go to my web sometime and find out where I'm doing one. Like I'm doing one in San Jose on Friday. And, you know, I, I, I move around the nation and, and parts of the world doing different leadership things. And you can do that. I just did one in Portland. Who was there in Portland? Uh, you were there in Portland. How did you like it? I didn't want to leave. Didn't want to leave. That was a two and a half day uh, intensive on uh, taking your church to the next level. And, and so that's a, uh, they're handing me down. My website is Frank. What is my website? <laughs> <laughs> I think I think it's FrankDemonzio.com. Yeah, it is. FrankDemonzio.com. My email is FrankDemonzio.com. My website is FrankDemonzio.com. Jesus' mighty name. Everyone said, Amen. 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 Amen.